This is David Haber, co-founder and CEO of Bond Street, and you're listening to The Nitty Gritty. This is my chance to connect with fellow founders and unpack the entrepreneurial experience, to learn about the moments that shape their careers, the unexpected challenges, and their sources of inspiration. Thanks for tuning in to episode nine of The Nitty Gritty. We're honored to have Adam Ross as our guest this week. Adam is the founder of Heyday, a facial shop taking the facial out of the spa and into your life. We spoke with Adam about how he spots potential investments, leaving the banking industry, and how growing up on his family's winery helped prepare him to run a small business. Hope you enjoy. I want to hear a tiny bit about growing up on a vineyard in Australia and just kind of like early touch points with entrepreneurship for you. Sure. I've been here 17 years, but, but before that was yeah, raised on a small family winery, which is a pretty cool, you know, pretty cool way to grow up. Uh, you know, Sundays were spent literally serving alcohol and selling wine to adults when I was like nine or 10 years old. What part of Australia is it? Uh, it's in a prominent wine region about two hours north of Sydney called the Hunter Valley. Um, and I think it's one of those ones we were on, you know, 100 acres. There were sort of the cliched kangaroos in the valley, koalas in the trees. Um, but we had the most sort of spectacular view from our, um, from our home that just sort of expanded across the, the lower Hunter Valley, which was just a beautiful part of the world. Um, my parents actually sold that towards the end of high school. So unfortunately, that's not in the, in the family anymore. But I then finished high school. I was sort of up in Newcastle and then went down to Sydney University. Um, and you know, studied economics, and I think at the time was a lot of things that sort of fascinated me were around sort of the, the world of, of banking and mergers and acquisitions. So that was actually the first and kind of only career I've had before entrepreneurship. So I did about 18 months in, in Australia, and then they offered me the chance to transfer across to New York. At UBS. At, at UBS at the time. Mm. Um, and I was with UBS. Um, for a number of years, I did graduate school yeah. over here. Why banking? It seems like a, a sidestep from, you know, growing up within this family business, entrepreneurship, to me at least. I don't know. What do you think drew you to that, that Yeah, world? I think it's, it's a great question. I think part of it was like banking and certainly like UBS at Australia that was sort of like the top investment bank. It, it just gave you the opportunity to be sitting in in boardrooms of you know sort of Fortune 100 companies, literally when you're 23 years old, and understanding I think like the strategic choices and decisions and what needs to be done to sort of keep a company viable and competitive, um, you know whether that's acquisitions, whether it's sort of divestitures, but I think as banking sort of morphs into a, a sort of a transactional and consulting type environment, it, it to my mind gave me sort of fantastic experience into. Um, you know, broader strategic decisions that can kind of like influence industries and, and, and products. Um, my focus in banking was just always in that sort of consumer products and retail realm. And <clears throat> I think banking, banking served its purpose. There's a lot, of, a lot of crap and menial nature that goes along with banking and that I think for, for anyone growing up, you quickly become aware whether you're the right person that's gonna like work well within a larger, yeah. more bureaucratic organization or you're not. Um, and there's no right or wrong. I, you know, was not one of those people. Right. And I think it's it was more evident in banking because as time went on, you kind of always loved the you know the ego with the front page sure. of the Wall Street Journal yeah. deals. But I was actually getting more and more interested in doing the 
almost like the smaller under the radar deals that no banker was particularly interested in, you know, the sort of the one to $500 million transactions where you're actually working side by side an entrepreneur that had actually yeah. built, built something that was, you know, providing delight to consumers, providing engagement. And that's, that to my mind, I think sort of fueled an itch that had just sort of increased year yeah. on year. And then it just, it came to the point where I wanted to sit across the other side of the table and, and actually be involved in building brands and businesses. When do you decide to leave, you've, you know, kind of the financial services industry? You were in banking, you were in kind of consulting yep. a little bit, it looks like. Uh, you know, those are fairly comfortable jobs. They're good growth. I mean, there's a lot of growth. You went to this extraordinary graduate school. Like, it looked clean. And not just, it's always nice to be like, I'm gonna chase my passion that shit sounds incredible, but like in actuality, it's hard. When, especially when you kind of have a good thing going. So what was the day like where I was kind of, sort of where you were kind of like, I'm gonna do it? I think it's, I mean, with banking. Or was it a day, I guess is another question. Yeah, I mean, there was a day, and I think you notice it when, when I'd sort of had a weekend planned midway through the year with, with a bunch of friends, you know, weekend away in Mexico, and you know, work ruined that. And there'd been sort of a series of other incidents you could point to over the years. I mean, banking, you, right, you live to work. I think that's a pretty fundamentally shitty lifestyle. And for me, there was sort of this epiphany when I looked around the office. It's like, I don't want to be any of these people. And, you know, I think, and while banking is a very comfortable right, lifestyle, it's also, it, it's not a flexible or it's a lifestyle that you can dictate on your own terms. And no matter how good your year in banking, January 1, you're always resetting the clock and you're starting again. I think versus actually building, building a brand and business, um, you get to the stage where your money works for you as opposed to you working for your money. Sure. So you leave and you start the Tussock Group, right? Is that how yes. you pronounce it? Correct. Um, and Saludos is born out of that, almost incubated out of that. Correct. Can you kind of explain what that, uh, what that group is or how it operates or what the idea was for it? Yeah, I mean, it was one of those ones where, I mean, tussock is a sort of like a tuft of grass that grows predominantly in the Southern Hemisphere and generally grows in areas where other grasses don't. So it was a nice, okay. nice metaphor for what sure. we're doing. Um, and I think it was just, it was, it was one of those ones where we actually sort of started out looking for sort of some smaller businesses to invest in. And I think where we struggled that, I mean, where, where ideas are generally, and I think sort of businesses are set up to succeed is more around the quality of the, of the management team and in the, you know, the brand equity. And I think when we looked at smaller businesses there, some of the valuations they were demanding, it sort of felt like we needed to buy a rundown house at the top of the market value. And then there was sort of all these other sort of risks and uncertainties around it. So we had a few ideas ourselves and it was sort of like, well, fuck, like, why are we paying for someone else's intellectual property when sure. we feel we've got a model here that can better leverage both our financial and intellectual capabilities? Um, what year is this? Sorry, just this, to... is, this is 2010. Okay. 2010 and, um, you know, sort of interesting, Nick, um, Nick Brown, who sort of had had sort of the the founder of, the founder of Saludos, CEO of Saludos, yeah. Saludos, you know, sort of had this idea, and I'd, I'd known Nick, you know, for a few years, um, and I think when he sort of knew my background, he said, "Hey, I'd just love you to sort of review this plan and give give me a few thoughts on on the business." And I, I sort of did it more out of courtesy, and as I 
read through the plan, I sort of went to Nick and said, there's, there's something here. Mm. Um, and Saludos was sort of very much the hypothesis of, of, of branding a large generic category, I think similar to what Javianas did with Flip Flops. Um, so I was like, let's, let's partner up, let's do this properly. And we, we launched in the market very, very quickly. Cool. So you came on before it launched, you guys Correct. financed it. Yes. And can you just explain what the business is and sort of where it is today, just for people who don't know? I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, Saludos, it's, it's actually a made up word. It's a combination of salud and cheers, which is sort of like a cheers to the sun, <laughs> cheers to the summer. Um, and I think it was just one of those ones where we wanted to, you know, espadrilles is a large generic category. You sort of had these, these crappy private label products at sort of like two to 15 bucks. Yeah. And then you had like the Pradas and LVMHs of the world at right. $400. So, you know, you can sort of take analogs in any industry. There was nothing in the middle that was aspirational, it was affordable, and had sort of quality of design and construction that sort of belied its price point. So we went in with, you know, price points generally sort of in the late 20s to early 40s. You know, it's more of a sort of a casual summer shoe, but we felt- So what does it retail for? Um, the, the price points evolved over the years. So the, the, the bulk of the range today, so kind of seven years in is, I'd say probably 42 to $85. Um, you know, there are a few products that are over, over 100, mm. but that, that sort of necessitates based on as you go into sort of some different constructions. So that was the first business you guys incubated? Yep. And this is the second, Heyday? Uh, there was another business that was actually incubated that's actually run um, out of Texas by a colleague called, the website is hatestains.com, but it's, um, it's kind of like an emergency stain rescue franchise brands. Like um, a Tide Stick? Like a Tide Stick, but it's, I'd say better. Yeah. But I mean, the, the playbook there was, I think, where, again, you can sort of take an analog in Method, who I think did a phenomenal job taking household products and yeah. taking it from sort of below the shelf to on top of the counter. They had a better product, they had better branding, and they had, I think, a sort of better execution and story around it. So, so no failures yet with it? No failures with it. Any failures in your life, in your career? Any like down moments? I mean, no. I, th I think as an entrepreneur, you have a. I mean, you have a. It's it's an emotional roller coaster. Sure. And you've got your your deep, dark, shitty days. Yeah. Um, I think, and you know, one of the things you need as a as a leader is you just you need determination. Right. You know, sometimes the the passion comes and goes, but you've just got to get through it. Um, and I th I think it's it's easier for me to sort of compartmentalize the bad days with Heyday having sort of been through it first time, but with Saludos there were some, I mean there were some pretty dark moments, um, you know, and it can rest on a, on a purchase order not coming through from a big account or something that was yeah. pretty pivotal to the business. Um, but I think what was interesting is even in my deep dark moments, I never once said I need to get back into investment banking or go back to some other salary position. There's like a trend in how you think about categories a little bit. I mean, beyond just consumer, right? I mean, like with the espadrilles trying to identify these big markets where there isn't sort of a middle player with a good brand and like a, a, a real like identity behind yep. it. Um, so I want to talk about where you, where the idea for Heyday came from, because on the one hand, I've heard the story, which is great about being at lunch and you, yep. you started to identify that facials is this unexplored, at this point probably dry bar starting to come about, but you also spent time really understanding the space while you were a banker. 
Does the idea for heyday come out of like an understanding of margins, or does it come out of a personal interest in skincare? I think it's 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 a great question, and it's almost funny how I've done sort of a bit of a one eighty since sort of leaving banking because some of the first questions I'd always ask or think about a business thesis coming out of banking was around the, the, the financial metrics. And that's always like a sense check for, you know, for reasonableness. And yeah. kind of probe on that a little more. So but, uh, I'm sorry to break that down, yeah. but just what does that entail quickly? I mean, really top level, I'm sure it needs to be more sophisticated, but I think that's something that seems easy to you, but people who have never spent a day in banking, like how do, where do you start? Like, are you talking about the size of an industry or? You know, I think it's, the issue is it always depends on like what you want to do because I think a lot of people that you're sort of interviewing or Bond Street works with, these are people that are sort of going for the grand slam, right? Sure. Really out to build transformative businesses. Um, there's, there's also like the other model which is, you know, not every business is going to be a hundred million or a billion dollars. It may just sort of be a single or a double, but if it's set up and structured the right way, to my mind that's like just as interesting. Yeah. Right? There, there are so totally. many thousands of entrepreneurs out there in the US today that have got like five to $10 million businesses that are literally producing 40% margins in cash. Like that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I'll take a $10 million business with four million in cash flow a year. Right, yeah, totally. Right? And that can, that can fund the big stuff where you want to swing for the fences. Right, and that's also like an interesting debt to equity conversation, right? Like a, Ex um, exactly. And it's, but sorry, I interrupted you. So no, the no, idea it's just, it's, you, you were looking at the space, you did a gut check on it and are, like, with heyday. Yeah, I think it's, and it's, it's, again, it's sort of interesting because it's, it's interesting how brands have evolved and I think with the, the real sort of growth in, in sort of social media and just the way the world has evolved in the last 10 years, businesses won 10 years ago by being all things to all people. Now as consumers have got more information than they've ever got before, you, there's so much more discerning in what they, what they want out of a brand and brands matter more than ever. And I think we're in, a, we're in a period of time where consumers right, clearly see brands as an extension of themselves, mm. which, is, which is central to sort of our thesis as to businesses we want to start and be involved in. I mean, I think if you, if you have that engagement with, with consumers, you've got like the right authentic proposition and you're offering a service that offers them sort of the best value proposition in the market. Right, the next check is then how do I do it in a way that I make the economics work and don't put the, you know, my, my PL under sort of too much pressure. Yeah. And that, that's one where, again, my banking background is, you know, is incredibly helpful. So, and again, it's going to put me in certain categories and, and preclude me from, from others. I, you know, I like strong, you know, PL margins. I like businesses that have got. You know, gross profit margins that are nicely north of 50%. I like EBITDA margins that are in the 20s. I like, I like good growth metrics, and I, and I do that in a way where I also want like a lifetime value of my client right. to be well above the average of certain other categories. So you're at lunch. Where Girl, are we eating? Soho House. <laughs> it was actually funny because it's, I was sort of at the lunch not really wanting to be there, and. I don't know, it was just, there was just like that light bulb moment where girls are complaining. And, you know, I think when you sort of probe, and I think what was such an interesting insight for me at the time was, A, there was no sort of option and no one had any idea on sort of like where to book to get a facial. Yeah. And when you then sort of ask a few other questions in terms of then where do you 
what do you do for skincare? What's your go-to resource? Where do you buy your products? You kind of ask 10 girls, you get 12 different responses. Right, interesting. And it's, it's very interesting because there's also, there's a number of you know, larger beauty brands that exist today and when you go to their website, there is literally no intellectual property on the website. It's just a lot of products with you know, the description, the price, how to use it, ingredients. Well, like anyone, like anyone can do that. Yeah. Like consumers, consumers are demanding more, and there's no one that's actually setting it up to actually give that to them. So this is in 2014. This so was in 2013. 2013. Uh, 2013. There was a lot of, you know, a lot of research then done over the over the next 12 months, and you know, for Heyday, for this shop to be open June 1st of 2015, we actually signed a lease in October of 2014. So with retail, it's it's amazing kind of how far in advance you, you need to be. Yeah. So um, end of 2013. Did you guys go way over budget on the build out? Did it take much longer than you expected? I mean, those are common things for, for yeah, people here, but maybe you didn't have those challenges. You know, you do. And I think it's, again, it's, it's interesting because I mean, we're in a landmarked building. Um, so there's always like two sets of obstacles we needed to overcome with the first space. It was getting through landmarks and it was getting through to department of buildings. Yeah. And it's frustrating when there's always parts of the timetable that are outside of your control. So right. you can submit to landmarks and they can get back to you next week, or they're like, we'll get back to you in six weeks. So the kind of like quick overview of Heyday um, for someone who isn't familiar with it. Sure, so for, for Heyday, I think you know, the, the analog I use more so than a, than a dry bar, yeah. um, who obviously done an incredible job almost freeing the, the blowout from the salon is, um, is the Warby Parker analogy where I think they, they looked and said, there's an industry that's, that's large, it's structurally challenged. There's no reason why designer frames should be north of $200. Um, so there should be a trade-off in price without a trade-off in, in quality. Um, so we, we use that similar playbook for, for facials where I think because it's been trapped in the, in the spa for so long, when it's in that environment, it does have, have this connotation around beauty and pampering and indulgence and what was evident even at this brunch when the light bulb moment came to me yeah. is is facials are about self-care and wellness and you knew that right off the bat right off the bat and it's one of those ones where the information's there it's been there for a while and you're sort of scratching your head I mean to some extent before we launched was like what are we missing like why has this not been done before mm. right it's sort of like the 900 pound gorilla in the room like people want to sort of have facials once a month I mean your skin cells renew every 28 days like why is no one set up to deliver on this like demand and, and need by the, by the client. Um, so Heyday, when we, and even when we sort of like branded Heyday, um, we wanted to avoid some of the typical spa or sort of derm cliches and we, we actually parked facials to the side and we said, what do we want to, why do we exist as a brand? And for us, we kind of went back and it was a bit of a throwback term to um, you know, what our parents or grandparents would have used, you know, back in my Heyday, yeah. back in my prime. So, as Heyday, at Heyday, we want to sort of help people be the best version of themselves and kind of have every day be their Heyday. So helping sort of skincare and helping them to look and feel their best as part of an overall self-care and wellness routine is kind of like the why for, for Heyday. You know, what, what do we do? We, you know, we deliver the best quality facials in the market at the best value. And, you know, we do it in a very different, you know, sort of non-spa type environment. You know, we want every Heyday experience to feel you know feel unintimidating to feel sort of casual to feel residential 
and you know, for us, it's just one of those those theses that we have that experiential retail is going to become increasingly more important in the future. So, you know, Hayday clearly sees itself as being front and central mm. in that evolution. How much is a, a facial, on average, at a kind of upmarket, not the, not the nicest ever, but, you know, an upmarket yeah. prior to Hayday? You know, one, 160 to 220. Right. And you so know. your pricing model... Well, our, our comparable facial to that price point would be would be ninety five dollars. Okay, significantly um, less. Significantly less, yes. How? I think it's. I mean, there's a number of. I think number of answers to that. One, our um, the space that we require is generally half that of a spa. The square footage. The square footage, and I think part of that is is as spas continue to evolve, they're spending more and more money on more expensive amenities, fixtures, and fittings. Um, which is fine sort of for the top few percent that want to sort of utilize that, but we don't need showers, we don't need steam rooms, we don't need locker rooms. So we've got basically like half the square footage of an average spa. We have more treatment rooms than the average spa. Um, our hours are eight to 10 in the Monday to Friday and sort of nine to eight on the weekends. Um, so it's a, you know, and we sort of set things up even sort of behind the scenes to be to be as variable costing as we possibly can relative to sort of fixed costs. Um, and I think when, you, when I'm focused on a consumer who I want to sort of engage with Hayday once a month, it just, it, it lends itself to a sort of a very, very different business model. Mm. I, it's, I think it's really interesting that you're, you're talking about facials as part of this like larger wellness dialogue and you know, you, you have a kind of a, yep. a number of different ways that you say it, but <clears throat> the, simple version of it is moving it away from this like spawn beauty and into overall wellness and, and sort of health in some sense. Uh, was that deliberate from day one? And like, how tactically do you go about doing that? Changing that narrative for people? Is it, where does it hit? How do you, how do you get people to think that way? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, for us, we, <clears throat> from the outset, deliberately went after a very, very different client a very different sort of consumer demographic, which is sort of the, the millennial female. And I think while Hayday is, is reasonably gender neutral and, and men is a huge opportunity, <coughs> excuse me, and I mean men are around sort of 15% of our business today and I, I think we can certainly improve that over time. Um, but even that's a lot, I'm surprised that it's that high. Yeah, but you know, men, men want to look after themselves. Sure. Um, and they don't necessarily need all the bells and, and whistles. Um, we did a, I mean, we did a bunch of consumer research and testing and there was no, no offering out there that sort of targeted a younger demographic. And it's not that we don't want to ultimately sort of attract the older, more affluent demographic. I mean, to my mind, that's clearly more of a secondary target because you, when you go out and talk to an audience, you can't, be, you can't be broad and be all things to all people. So you've got to like, pick a lane and go for it. And you know, for us, it's, it's sort of females in that sort of age 20, 23 to 35 category. Um, and that's, that's an area of the market that has never been an area of focus. I mean, every other spa that's opening up, it's you know, 55 and above wow. the sort of target demographic. So it's, it's not just the, I think, sort of like the offering and the branding and sort of the, the brand partnerships that we, you know, we work with. It's, it's also how we inform and communicate to, to our primary clients, and that's they're so hungry for the right level of knowledge and information, it's almost sort of like the more we, the more we feed them, the more they want to learn. And that, to my mind, is, 
is, is incredibly powerful because the more heyday is seen as being that, that educator of skincare and breaking it down so it's almost one less thing for them to worry about, that's, that's a pretty powerful reason to it's exist. Primarily repeat customers or... Can, can I can I get a subscription? Can I is that you can you can certainly get a subscription. Um, you know we've got a little over a third of our clients today that are on a subscription model, um, and there's different types. So people can choose whether they want to do sort of a fifty minute once a month, or they yeah, want to do right. fifty and thirty. But that's an option. You can. It, it's an option. I mean, we did it we did it as monthly because an area of skincare where dermatologists are remarkably consistent is you know your skin cells renew every twenty eight days. So that's generally the right frequency with which you want to be getting a facial. How important is it, do you think, uh, for someone to understand money or finance as a business owner? I think it's, it's such a critical part of the, of the spectrum, and this is one where I've got a very, a very sort of strong point of view. It, it may not necessarily be, if, if you're the person that's creatively got a wonderful idea for the business, you may not need to be that person that has a detailed understanding, but you certainly need a partner that complements you to do that. Um, and I say that because I, I look at a number of businesses and you, you, know, you see some in the press that are sort of touted as, as darlings and doing wonderful things. And you know, what I know behind the scenes is that they've been you know, pretty imprudent with their, with their capital and with their financing. And it's, I mean, it's a holistic view to, I think, how you want to sort of structure structure a business and run a business. And I'm certainly a fan of, of using capital when you need capital to grow and make the brand all it can be. But I think a lot of people have been pretty imprudent with how they've used capital in recent years. And that's gonna shake out over the next 12 to 24 months. I agree. Um, what business expense have you most un underestimated here? You think it's consistent what, with what most people who operate brick and mortar underestimate? Maybe you didn't underestimate anything, but. I think it's, the biggest thing we've probably underestimated hasn't necessarily been the explicit expense with things. I think it's been the time it's needed to do things or the time that are allocated to things which do have an implicit expense in you know, the salaries and the, the costs that go towards these things. So whether it's just like ongoing facility mm -hmm. issues or just things that you, know, you wake up in the morning and get a few emails on Okay, I had no, my, my day wasn't planned around what I've now got to sort of deal with around, um, you know, getting new cleaners for our facility or, you know, getting, getting machines serviced, just little things that no one sort of sees the, the ugly side of how the sausage is made, but yeah. it all just sort of, that, that stuff can, can certainly add up. Um, you know, there's other areas where I think we've deliberately leaned in more that wasn't in the initial business plan around training and education of our team to deliver the services. Um, that's been a conscious choice. How'd you find good people? We've made. Um, it was much harder before we opened door one because we were just a, a brand yeah, on a piece idea. of paper. Yeah. Um, we reached out to um, a couple of the top training schools um, and sort of used that as a, as a ground to sort of pick. Was that pick effective? Some of the better. It was incredibly effective. Yeah, um, and most, that's great. They're, they're all sort of all still with us today. Um, and I think what's gratifying today is as the brand is out there, I mean, we're in an industry where, I mean, a lot of these estheticians are in sort of single door, like mum and pop type places. There's no opportunity for career advancement or work in multiple doors. 
Um, you know, we cover a bulk of benefits for our full-time people. Um, you know, they're all sort of employees. We know we've got the right compensation structure. Mm. Um, we offer, I think, ongoing growth and development that is increasingly important for, for therapists. I mean, a lot of them, funnily enough, are in their second careers, generally. So while financial compensation is certainly important, growth and development is just as important. And, and at Heyday, with a lot of the ongoing growth and development that we do, I think we offer a, a, a sort of a, a, an employment-based platform that is that is very favourable to anything else out there. So time from concept to door one, door one to door two, and now door two to door three. There are three locations in New York. Just to get a sense of how that's speeding up. So I think it's what's what's nice about the the behaviour that we're we're seeing with our clients. So you know to come full circle with your question earlier, while we have sort of more than one third of our clients that come every month, we've generally got sort of 70% of our revenue in any month across our entire business coming from repeat clients. And our number one source of referrals for new clients are existing clients. So at the stage now, whereas that foundation gets bigger with our client base, is we're almost gonna be needing to open up a new heyday every six months just to satisfy that that sort of existing and new growth, um, which is, you know, which, which is great, but it's just it's the nature of being in a business that's somewhat supply constrained. Yeah, right? I've only got so many hours in the day and, and seats to sort of put bums into. <laughs> um, you know, so for us, it's and it was funny. I think Drybar experienced sort of early on. I mean, when one of the reasons you exist is for convenience, so people can have accessibility to the service you're offering, and then you're too booked to not be able them enable consumers to do that, you're sort of acting in a manner that's inconsistent with one of your core beliefs. So um, we actually do have sort of two other new um, new openings later this year. In New York? Um, in New York, yeah. I think for us, New York is the focus for the, for the foreseeable future. How many locations do you think you can have here? I probably need a little more time in the business to sort of understand what consumer behavior ultimately looks like. Um, I think we can certainly you know, be sort of like, you know, 12 to 16 doors. And, I, you know, I sort of do broader New York around that. So, you know, we're yet to, yet to be in Brooklyn. Um, and then I think there's further opportunities if you take a bit of a concentric circle approach to, you know, sort of Greenwich or, um, you know, Short Hills, New Jersey, things like that. Yeah. Um, Have you thought about a second market, though? You know, it's, it's such a great question, and, and that's... I think for us, the strategic question we know we need to answer over the next sort of few months. You know, yeah. one, one school of thought is go to Los Angeles because that sort of lets you be a national brand and it's sort of a sizable market. Um, you know, the, the other end of the, of the spectrum is go to a secondary market because if you prove the concept in New York, you, you know it can work in a primary city, so take it to a different urban environment or context and, yeah. and show it can work there. Because New York can be a weird place. Like obviously you have something that's working and it's great and that's yep. super exciting, but there are just so many people that I, I, I wonder how, like I think it's interesting when concepts get removed from it, how well they stand up on their, their own two legs like outside of the city. Yeah, and Is that a concern at all? No, because I mean that was one of the ones that sort of factored into the initial research because I think we wanted a, a business that could certainly play well at 
at sort of a national level. And I think even what even sort of factored into our price point and offering is this is a business that can work in primary, secondary and tertiary cities. Um, so to talk about how you're going to, how you think about, I mean, it's a capital intensive business. Like you, how are, how do you think about financing it? I mean, obviously we're sitting here today because you leverage Bond Street yep. for debt financing, but a lot of kind of going back to that, well, I mentioned this in the, the very first part of the conversation, like, do you think that you'll be able to scale up leveraging debt? I mean, are, are you going to get to a point where you're going to have to raise big equity dollars to really own the space? Yeah, it's, it, it obviously depends on the rate of growth for us. I think, I think facials, I mean, skincare is complicated. And I mean, we basically have on average like 30 therapists to shop. So it's, it's, it's always going to scale. I mean, something like a Warby Parker with a different sort of labor model can clearly scale much faster than we can. Yeah. Um, so I don't think we're ever going to be at the stage where we, um, you know, where we're opening sort of 50, right, 50 a year. I mean, I think over time the, the frequency is going to increase, whether that's four to six to eight or whatever. I think we'll just do what's right in a manner that doesn't, I'd rather be more sort of slow and steady and methodical and... Which you can do if you don't ex- raise equity, I guess. Or like well, you, you can, and it, it's, it's, it's a balance. I mean, there are some people that are clearly adverse to debt. I, I believe in using it in the right manner and in a way where it doesn't put unnecessary strain and pressure on the business. Um, and again, different people have got different points of view on that. I think the more I can be respectful of my investors' equity and do the right thing by the business, in a way where I am more prudent with, with equity capital, yeah. then I think that's the right balance. Now is that, is that 70, 30, 60, 40, 50, 50? TBD. I don't know what that looks like. Um, it's sort of funny because with speaking to a couple of people and it's where, where Bond Street actually is a call out to them have been fantastic is, is they're more of a partner for small businesses. I mean, I, I almost would have probably had more success raising capital if I was like hemorrhaging cash yeah. at certain banks than, than one with sort of brick and mortar, which is historically a, a category that people are, are somewhat reluctant to lend against. How long does this remain interesting for you? Like, once it's up and running and big and great, hopefully it's all of those things, are you then back to, okay, I have another consumer idea, this is an, a, a space that's not doing well enough, or do you get tired and say, I'm going to go to... Australia and I'm going to drink wine or me and my girlfriend are moving back to South Africa and fuck it. I don't, there's no ego with how long I need to, to be around. I mean, Saludos was, was, you know, interesting example. I sort of, you know, ran the business for a few years. Um, It was then pretty obvious that you needed the right management team with the experience to scale and do things that I couldn't do. Um, I think as, as Heyday evolves, there's going to be different people that fill those those categories, um, you know, I don't know the answer. I've got no plans to. I've got no plans to move on. Um, but I also, th- I'm a big fan of getting the right people on the bus. So yeah. I, I don't really know what that looks like yet. And I think the. It, it's sort of funny because you look for you look for two. You know, the right person comes along when they when they basically satisfy two requirements. One is, they can obviously like answer all the questions you you put at them. But importantly they raise the right questions that you hadn't thought to ask. And that's, that's a difficult person to find, and I think we'll know that when we, you know, when we come across it. You've um, seen, 
all these deals now in your life, like even as uh, while working in finance, while working as an entrepreneur, what are you looking for in new business concepts? Like what, what, what comes across your desk at times and you're like, that is a home run to me? I think it's, it's, it's something that, that isn't another me too or just incrementally innovates in an existing category. Um, so, I mean, to give you an example, I think something, I mean, All Birds is, I think, a good example of that. Right. So, right, Tim, Tim Brown, CEO, you know, sort of a friend of mine. I mean, what's, what's so great, I mean, he's, he's Another probably- Another Australian, right? Kiwi. Sorry. He's a Kiwi. You're gonna get kicked and, out and, of here. No, well, actually, and random statistic, if you ever sort of come across him, he, I think he was actually the captain for the All Whites, which is the New Zealand soccer team. And when he went to South Africa in the World Cup in 2010, New Zealand were the only undefeated team in the tournament, despite getting knocked out in the group phase. But, but what's, what's, what's so gratifying when you see Tim's business and like they launched in the market probably this time 12 months ago, and they're on this incredible trajectory, but they're, A, they're growing the right way, um, but he's just got a product that is fundamentally different. It's the right proposition. Yeah. It's sort of a quality product, and it's so simple and neat and clean and executed. Right. Brilliantly. Like that's it's a, just a it's a it's a sort of good-looking sneaker made of wool, right? Or how would you? Yeah. It's. I mean, it, the way the way they I think they probably describe it on the website is the way I describe it, which is the most comfortable shoe in the world. Got it. Yeah, that sounds better than a comfortable sneaker made of wool. I saw those. You know, and uh, it's 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 great. But versus say going to like an Expo West. Yeah. You're going out to Anaheim. You can. It's very easy to sort of walk some of those halls and you get to the end and you've sort of forgotten like half the brands that you've seen. You know, Got it's it. another, you know, another peanut butter brand or another nut brand. Right. And again, it's so you're looking for new new things. Looking looking for new and different things. Um, and I think again, the, but the way I also sort of think about it is, I think a lot of people look at entrepreneurs and say they're very, they've got a very high tolerance for risk. I don't have a high tolerance for risk at all. And like every Every question you ask along the way is, how do I de-risk this like strategically or right. sort of financially? Yeah, that, that's And that's, that's, that's done every single step of the way. So you're actually not making these big sort of guesses and like, did I get it right or did it wrong? Like you're never gonna have total visibility. Um, and I think that's, it's, so it's the idea and it's also the way in which that you want to, you want to go to market because I'm also much more interested in backing a plan or investing in a business that to, to build and grow the right brand equity, it's a more of a sort of a considered growth as opposed to maximizing revenue out of the gates and you know spending a lot to maximize revenue next year. Mm. That's, that's not interesting to me and I think that's a very difficult way to build a sustainable yeah. brand. Did you have a mentor? Have you had a mentor? There are you know, a few different people you, you, know, you use along the way and they've been you know, they're all invaluable and it doesn't mean you always sort of take their advice, but they've, they've done it before. And, you know, I, few people sort of use me as a mentor. So it's, yeah. a, it's a nice ecosystem and it's a nice way to sort of pay it, you know, pay it forward. Are there entrepreneurs that you admire most? I think, I mean, there's a lot of people that are doing some really special, you know, it's doing some really special things. Um, you know, I think some of them are the, you know, more more obvious examples that will be cited if it's the, you know, 
you know, the guys from Harry's who sort of, you know, Warby Parker and Harry's, there's two very powerful um, examples there. I, I think, you know, I think what sort of some of the guys are doing at Peloton is, is fascinating and really sort of disrupting that model. I think how that, how that business grows, how they think about sort of targeting home entertainment more broadly is, yeah. is, is fascinating. Um, and then there's also, you know, some of these sort of less celebrated entrepreneurs in sort of less sexy industries that have also built, you know, some incredible, you know, incredible things, whether it's the guys from, I mean, 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Like yeah. things that you just, you wouldn't think about. It's amazing. But it's Did just, you listen to how I built this on that? Uh, I do. I mean, so I love yeah, that podcast. I, yeah, I thought hit, that episode was fantastic. I mean, and there's, you know, there's a number of these, again, sort of like little businesses that aren't, aren't in the press, they're not sort of the darlings because they're not sexy or yeah, shooting to be I the next billion too. dollar unicorn. That's, if anything, it's the, it's the smaller ones that resonate with me because they've done, they've built something very special and I think importantly they've built it the right way in a way where what every entrepreneur wants is a business that resonates with its clients, right? Solves a consumer problem and importantly, like, lets the entrepreneur sort of like live life on, on their terms, right? Which is different for every person. A few final questions. We're almost done. Yep. Um, just kind of like advice for other people who are either business owners now looking to start a business, entrepreneurs. What do you think are some of the most important piece of advice that you've learned over your last, whatever, 25-year career that you can share with people? You know, I think, I think A, more than ever, it's... It's about the team and the people. Um, I think it's it's outright impossible to build a, an amazing business on your own these days. I think it was easier to do that 15 years ago. Um, and I say that in the context that with so many, the back end of businesses, the supply chain, like the systems used to manage businesses is increasingly commoditized. Um, it's still, I mean, it's such a necessary part of what a small business needs because, again, you can't use like the small get out of business, get out of jail free business card that, you know, smaller businesses have used in recent years. Um, but if you've got an A plus team, even if some of your execution or branding or a few things that aren't where they need to be on version one, you know, they're kind of like B plus, an A plus team will still hustle and like make it work. Um, I think if you've got sort of an A plus idea, if it's if, if it's in like a B management team hands these days, I think that's kind of that is less likely to to succeed. So to my mind, it's all about the people and how certainly sort of like the two or three leaders have like a complementary set of, of mm -hmm. skills. Something that we ask everyone, um, especially because Bond Street, you know, and our really our, our real focus is on independent business. Um, what are your three favorite, sorry to put you on the spot, three of your favorite independent businesses in New York? So I'm a Soho hood rat. So I'm... I don't know that you can be a Soho hood rat. Well, I'm, I'm so confined to the 10012 <laughs> zip code, it's, it's a little embarrassing. That's um, fair though, there's great businesses there. You know, I, I think on the, you know, on the independent side, an obvious one for me is um, you know, McNally Jackson. Yep. Which is sort of both, both the bookstore and the, and the stationery store around the corner on Mulberry. Yeah. Um, it sort of embodies a lot of what, well, what Soho is about. Last. She's fantastic. Um, I mean, it's just fantastic. Yeah, and I it's, agree. Um, 
you know, also in the hood, I would say, um, you know, sort of Jack's wife, Frida. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, Dean and Maya, I know they're fantastic. Um, they're just, they're, they're a neighborhood local. And I think sort of similar to one thing we emphasize at Heyday is the hospitality they exude in, in Jack's totally wife agree. is just, just next level. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, it's, so, it's so gratifying or frustrating when you go there and you've got to like wait because it's like they've, they've created something that people want to experience. Yep, totally. Um, trying to think on a number. It's hard, I know, I put you on the spot. You've you put me on the spot, I've, I've answered two. I think, you know, I've got my, um, you know, for me there's probably sort of like the local, you know, sort of coffee shop which is sort of takeaway and that, that'll probably like be gimme yep. coffee on Mott Street. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's just sort of, it's, it's the real sort of Soho experience of the, the walk and the, the coffee outside, you know, the dogs there. Thank you so much for taking the time That's to That's okay, chat. hopefully it was. It was fantastic, I really enjoyed it.